Well, good morning, New Hope. Great to be with you this morning. If you're new here and you don't know me, I'm Gary Post. I'm the associate pastor here. Mark Kring is actually catching fish in Alaska this morning. Yeah, that's what I say. Bring back some fish, Mark. He texted me yesterday, said he'd be praying for me today, and I texted him back. I said, bring home some fish. That's right. So halibut and salmon are at risk out there. He's there with a few other guys, and he loves Alaska. So this is one of those trips. I wanted to mention a couple things to you this morning before we get started. One is uh, an opportunity that's coming up next month in Battle Creek. It doesn't come around very often. It's a Promise Keepers, Promise Keepers uh, conference in, um, in Battle Creek. It's the 23rd and 24th, I think. Yeah, 23rd and 24th, Friday evening, Saturday morning. And uh, it's four guys. It's a men's thing. How many have been to a Promise Keepers conference before? Yeah, it, it's a, it can be a profound experience, a, a spiritual turning point for you as a guy. And a number of us are going down from the church here, and so I'd encourage you to, to go if you can. And it's a great time to bond with some other guys, and at the same time, uh, just to kind of renew your life with God. And, uh, and it can be uh, very powerful, as I mentioned. Um, if you would... Uh, you can register online yourself, but then if you would check with Brian Webster, raise your hand, Brian. There you go. If you if you'd uh, touch base with Brian Webster, then in, his information is on an insert, and um, Brian's going to coordinate transportation so we can ride together. We're going to drive back and forth. We're not going to stay down there unless you want to. The other opportunity has to do with Dr. Jonathan Egrich. You know, if you've been uh, perusing your bulletins there, that Jonathan Egrich is a licensed clinical psychologist. He's available to us on Friday mornings here at the church. It's a wonderful opportunity uh, for those of you who are at the place in your life, and all of us are at some point, when, when uh, you need to talk to somebody else. And, uh, and to have a person with his expertise and training uh, in the building here on Fridays is dynamite. It's completely confidential, and uh, you can arrange appointments with him directly and that information in your, in your bulletin. If you need financial assistance, obviously everything he does is confidential. He doesn't communicate that to us. But if you need financial assistance, then call me. And I, I'm the only one who will need to know about it. I don't grill you about why you need to see him. I, I just give you the... I, I just need to know so that I can tell him where to send the bill. That's all. But um, we, would, we would love to come alongside you in that way. Proverbs says uh, two are better than one because if one falls down, the other can pick him up, Right? And so that's what we want to do for you if, uh, if you're in that place. And uh, I, had, had a, I met with a woman yesterday who volunteered to me that she had met with Jonathan. She had glowing things to say about how he encouraged her. So I'd, en- I'd encourage you to take advantage of that if you, if you uh, are at that place where, where you should. Now today we're going to talk about the resurrection. I'd like to approach it like uh, investigators would. Uh, most of you know that I was a state policeman for my first career in my life, and so I was a criminal investigator, trained as a criminal investigator, and carried a caseload of cases that I investigated and put together like jigsaw puzzles until we could figure out who'd, who did what uh, in, in those various crimes over the years. And so I, I'd like to approach the, the resurrection in the same way this morning, and my goal is to equip you so that when you walk out of here today, you could have a water cooler conversation with somebody tomorrow about the... Uh, the fact that the resurrection, that the most plausible resurrection on a rational level is, is that uh, Jesus rose from the dead, that supernatural occurrence that Jesus rose from the dead. Let's pray before we start, shall we? 
Father, thanks for this time together today. I thank you for each of these folks and their hearts for you and their desire to know you more and to serve you better and to love you more. And, and I ask that uh, you would, uh, in, in some small degree, transform each of us further into the image of Jesus Christ this morning. We know that none of this happens without the power of your Spirit, so we ask that you pour out your Holy Spirit on uh, me as your weak vessel this morning and then also on each one of us here, uh, that we would apprehend what it is that you have for us to see. And I, I pray that you would work out each of your purposes for this time this morning together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the book, The Blood of Lambs, the story is told of one man's transformation from radical jihadist to follower of Jesus Christ. Kamal Salim was born and bred a, a terrorist. In, in 1957, he was born into a large Sunni Muslim Lebanese family in the heart of the Middle East. He was taught by his father and mother from an early age to hate Christians and Jews. And at age seven, he began terrorist training with the PLO. He became skilled with weapons and terror, terror tactics, and he rose through the ranks of the terrorist organizations because they appreciated his ruthlessness and his dedication to radical Islam. He was soon promoted and sent to the United States to recruit networks of jihadists who would work secretly to undermine and, and ultimately to destroy the great Satan, the United States. But God had another plan for Kamal Salim. This is an interesting study in how God orchestrates the events of our lives for his purposes. You see, he was on his way to a secret meeting with another jihadist when he was in a horrific car crash that fractured his neck in several places. A Christian surgeon happened to treat him in the emergency room. And because ultimately they found that he had no insurance or other resources, at least those that he could talk about, because he was funded by a, a Saudi sheikh, but he couldn't very well tell the people at the hospital that that, uh, that was where his funding came from or, or this was what he was here to do. And so this, this Christian doctor, this Christian surgeon, physical therapist, and, and others uh, took him in and took him into his own home to continue his recovery for several months. And while living with this doctor's family, he was overwhelmed by the love of Christ that was demonstrated to him by the Christians that he met in that family and others. And, and slowly he be, began to realize that the love he saw among those Christians was genuine and a far different reality than he had been taught by his parents and his radical mentors. Kamal came to the, a moment of truth when, when he realized that everything he had been taught was a lie. He dropped to his knees in his apartment. He, he cried out to Allah. He said, I want to hear your voice. Allah, I want to hear that you love me. If you're real, speak to me. I poured all my hope and faith into my prayer. But there was only silence. There was only stillness. Not one dust particle moved. A deep sadness engulfed me. My whole life had been a vain masquerade, I decided. Empty and void. There is no place for me to go. There is nothing left for me. Kamal went to a weapons cache that he had under the floor and he extracted a 9mm pistol with which to end his life. And just then he heard a powerful voice. Kamal, the Muslims believe in the God of Father Abraham and so do the Jews and the Christians. Why don't you call on the God 
of Father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, too terrified not to listen. He rushed back to the window and fell. He said, I fell on my knees again. I cried out in a loud voice with every fiber within me. God of Father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you are real, speak to me. God of Father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you are real, I want to know you. Then for the first time in my life, a miracle happened in front of me. The window brightened until its frame disappeared. The entire room flooded with light. In the light, there was overwhelming love and peace and joy. My heart leapt within me because I knew that it was the light of God. Who are you? My Lord, I cried. A voice in my heart said, I am that I am. What does that mean, I called out. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the voice said. I have known you since before the foundation of the world. Lord, I I will live and die for you, I said. Do not die for me, the voice said. I died for you, that you may live. At that moment, I knew I had met the Christian God. I knew I had met my Creator. There was no turning back. It's a riveting story. Let me ask you this question. What helped Kamal Salim to turn the corner? What was it? The first thing that helped him to turn the corner? Love. Exactly. Uh, The love of those Christians that God had brought into his life. He encountered the love of Christ demonstrated in a tangible way in the lives of those other Christians. It was a different reality. He couldn't comprehend it. It didn't match what he had been taught. And it caused him to question everything that he had learned previous to that. And it brought him to the place where he was at the end of himself. And he cried out to God. And God responded, and God responded apparently with a, a vision of Jesus Christ. And if you're like me, uh, I'm, kind of a, I'm kind of a skeptical guy. And, uh, and I would question that. And certainly if it were the only instance, I might, I might question it. Uh, but let me give you a picture of what's happening in the Middle East right now. Kamal's experience is being replicated hundreds and thousands of times among Muslims in the Middle East right now. Tom Doyle is a, is a guy who was a Dallas Seminary graduate, a pretty conservative seminary. Uh, Dallas Seminary grad and a missionary to the Middle East for the past dozen years. He wrote a book called Dreams and and Visions where he documents uh, many of these instances that have occurred across the Middle East. He's saying 10 years ago, he said this was a rare occurrence. Now he says one out of three Muslims that are coming to faith in Christ are seeing visions and and dreams of of Jesus Christ. He says that uh, more Muslims have come to faith in the last 10 years than in the previous 1,400 years. In in fact, the, the... they're coming by the hundreds and thousands in the Muslim countries across the world. And there's a great movement of God in the Muslim world. The fastest growing, uh, the countries with the fastest growing numbers of churches, you'll never guess, are, are Iran and Afghanistan, the underground church movement. And it seems to, the pattern seems to be that uh, uh, one out of three Muslims have these uh, supernatural experiences like Kamal did. And then God, God's Holy Spirit guides them in, into interaction with other people who are already Christians. And, and those Christians can explain to them what's happening to them and, and then, and then uh, get them into the Word of God. And, and then a conversion takes place and, and their life 
is transformed. Christian radio already reaches about 93% of the world, including much of the Muslim world, and evangelical Christianity is the fastest growing world religion. 82,000 Christians come to faith in Jesus Christ every day by conversion. That's not by population growth. 93% uh, of Muslim growth is, or the growth in Islam is, is by birth. Uh, but that's not true with evangelical Christianity. God is on the move. There's a, a man named Father Zakaria. He's a Christian apologist and pastor who broadcasts into uh, the Middle East. And he debates Islamic clerics. And when he's on television in one of those appearances, 60 million viewers watch across the Middle East. Many of them illegally, by the way. In, in Iran, 7 to 9 million Persians watch satellite broadcasts of a young guy named Hormoz Shariat. You can see him on, uh, you see him on YouTube. Hormoz Shariat, he's called the Billy Graham of Iran. That's 10% of the population that watches him on, on uh, illegal satellite TV in Iran. And underground churches are exploding in, in Iran. I'll tell you a story a little bit later about uh, one of those underground churches. And there are two reasons I, I use this example and bring you up to speed on what's happening in other parts of the world. And number one is that in our Western world, we have a bias against the supernatural. Our, our culture is so infused with naturalism, that is, believing that there's nothing that occurs beyond our five senses or beyond our own experience. If we can't see it, taste it, touch it, and so on, then it must not be real. And, and the, uh, much of the rest of the world doesn't see things the same way. But it makes us distrust anything that is beyond our, our experience. And what, what Tom Doyle said about, about uh, bringing that perspective into the Muslim world was this. He said, God showed me that my theology does not determine my actions. My theology does not determine my actions. That does not determine his actions, that is. We need to be open to whatever God, however God wants to operate in our, in our lives and in the lives of, of other people groups. And, and if, uh, if we're in unbelief, that is, if we restrict our thinking about God to just what we experience and, and what we can accomplish in, our, in our, uh, our five senses, in our own capabilities, we'll restrict God from doing the supernatural. And folks, it will hamstring our ability to pray and see God act. And, and, and so we need to be able to do that. Uh, prayer has to be bold and a positive expectancy that God will answer. So one reason is to counter that naturalism. And another reason has to do with further proof for the resurrection. We're going to be talking about evidence for the resurrection this morning. And, and if this is indeed true, if hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of Muslims are seeing visions of Jesus Christ, it is further proof that the resurrection has occurred and that Jesus is indeed alive. Now that's not a newsflash to most of you here this morning. Uh, but it's just further proof to the rest of the world. God is doing something unusual in, in the rest of the world. Why does the resurrection matter? Well, it's the single most important event in, the, in human history. Christianity hinges on it. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul spoke to this issue in the Corinthian church of the day. And he said, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, we are of all people to be, most to be pitied. You see, 
if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then he was not the Son of God. If he didn't rise from the dead, then our sins are, are not forgiven, number two. Number three, if he didn't rise from the dead, we're still under the control of sin and, and death. Uh, number four, there is no eternal life if he did not rise from the dead. Number five, this life is all there is. And number six, you and I have been wasting a lot of time in church if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead. So the resurrection is, is important. One cannot be saved without believing that Jesus is the Son of God and rose from the dead. Paul says in Romans 10:9, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you, you will be saved. And, and this is why, uh, one reason why Doyle thinks that uh, God is appearing to Muslims in this way, because they know Jesus, don't they? But they know him as a great prophet. They know him as a man, not as a son of God, not as one who came to sacrifice his life uh, for the rest of us to save us. And so there's that obstacle, there's that barrier. But I'll tell you what, the, the story is, if you read the Dreams and Visions book, uh, that stories of those people who've come to faith in Christ, immediately when they have that experience, there is no doubt in their mind, just like uh, Kamal here, there is no doubt in their mind who they're talking to, they're, that they're talking to the Lord of the universe at, at that moment. So Jesus clears up those barriers uh, right, out of the, right out of the gate. So the implications of the resurrection uh, affect every man, woman, and child in history, and they affect us for eternity. How do we help not yet believers to grasp the, the truth of the resurrection? Well, you know, uh, we're past the point where we can just say, well, it's in the Bible, you know, you should believe it. Because a lot of people don't uh, think the Bible has any application or authority for them. They think it, it's a myth. And so we have to approach people differently. We have to approach people on, on a rational level. And, you know, if you think about it, your faith and mine, it, it's always grounded in, in a fact proposition, isn't it? There's also always certain information we're aware of before we come to faith. In the case of salvation, we're aware, we become aware that, that we're sinners, that we cannot please God on our own. And then we become aware that the sin's penalty is death. And then we become aware that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, that God has made a way, he sent a rescue plan, and, and he will in fact uh, save us, declare us not guilty for all time, and put in motion a process, the process of sanctification, that changes us into the image of Christ over time, over the course of our lives. And, and those are facts that you begin to know before you come to faith. Well, it's the same thing with a resurrection. And I think what we need to do as believers when we approach the, the network of people that God has brought into our world, we need to be able to build a bridge for them from where they are to the point of faith, you see? And some of, that, some of that bridge has to do with helping them with the facts of what they need to believe, what they need to understand in order to come to faith in Jesus Christ. A conversation, something like, what if I were able to show you that the most reasonable and plausible explanation for the empty tomb was that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? What if I were able to show you, like we did on uh, the July 4 weekend, if you missed that one, we talked about the origin of the universe. What if I were able to show you that the most reasonable and scientifically credible explanation for the origin of the universe was that God designed it and created it out of nothing? You see, it, it, helps, us, it helps people bridge from where they are uh, with facts, with information, to a point of faith. And, and that's what we need to be able to do. Now that whole process is enabled start to finish by the Holy Spirit. We can't argue somebody into the kingdom, can we? But we can pray them into the kingdom. And, and the Holy Spirit 
can make it clear to them, make those facts make sense. In fact, the Holy Spirit will create opportunities in our network of relationships for us to interact and engage with people in that way so we can have that conversation and so it makes sense to them. Well, we want to talk about the, the resurrection today as kind of a whodunit. In other words, the mystery of the empty tomb. Where did the body go? First thing we need to remember is that we need to follow the evidence. And we get, a, get ourselves into trouble if we uh, decide on a theory of what happened before uh, we consider where the evidence takes us. And, and so when you're deciding on a theory with a crime, you know how Dateline or 48 Hours will kind of steer you in different directions and leave you in suspense? Well, sometimes if you fixate on a, on a particular theory of the crime, what you'll do is, is you'll accumulate evidence to fit that theory rather than following where the evidence actually goes. And so you'll come to the wrong conclusion. And that's, that's where a lot of people in our world are right now. So we need to let the evidence define the, the theory. And the other thing is... Uh, I'll tell you at the get-go that the facts, the facts, the evidence in this case, favor the biblical account of the resurrection as the most plausible explanation. Faith is not something that we, it's not an emotional thing. It's not just a, a wish or a hope or something that we feel strongly about. It's based in fact. And, and, and our analysis of the resurrection and our conclusions about that are based in, in the evidence itself. Well, there's evidence for Jesus' life and death. And we're going to read about uh, some of that historical evidence right now. In Matthew 28, Matthew 28, verses uh, 1 through 15, this is one historical account of the resurrection. Actually, the, each of the Gospels contains one historical account of the resurrection. They're, they're from different perspectives. Each person that wrote one of these perspectives was either an eyewitness or they had direct access to eyewitnesses. And actually, even by secular historians, the, uh, the four Gospels are considered highly reliable historical accounts uh, because they were written so close to the time uh, that, they, that the incident occurred. And also because they had access to eyewitnesses, they're supported by other uh, non-biblical sources. So, so they're highly credible. Let's read the one in uh, Matthew's perspective in uh, Matthew 28. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, that is the mother of James, went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. While they were going... Behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Okay, 
So that's one historical account. Matthew obviously was not an eyewitness. He had access to the eyewitnesses. And uh, let's look first of all at the evidence that Jesus lived, died, and, w- and was buried. Uh, there is no, you, every once in a while you run into somebody who will say, well, Jesus, we don't know if he really existed or not. He's kind of a mythical character and it's a, it's a fable, you know, and you can't really trust it. Well, that's, that's not what any credible historian, secular or Christian, will say. Uh, no modern-day credible historian disputes the fact that Jesus actually lived and died, was crucified and buried. Dr. Bart Ehrman, an eminent non-Christian historian, puts it this way, I'm not a Christian. I have no interest in promoting a Christian cause or a Christian agenda. I'm an agnostic with atheist leanings, and my life and views of the world would be approximately the same whether or not Jesus existed. But as a historian, I think evidence matters, and the past matters. And for anyone to whom both evidence and the past matter, a dispassionate consideration of the case makes it quite plain. Jesus did exist. Another secular historian says it this way. I claim to be a historian. This is Blakelock. He says, I claim to be a historian. My approach to classics is historical. And I tell you that the evidence for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ is better authenticated than most of the facts of ancient history. So that's from a, those are from secular historians. Well, there's plenty of evidence for the resurrection. Let's look first at a picture of what the empty tomb might have looked like. Uh, that's what Jesus' tomb may have looked like. You notice that it was hewn right out of the rock. You notice that the entrance is low. So you see in these accounts that the disciples and others had to stoop down to look into it or to go inside. Notice the, the round circular stone. That, in, that implies that there was a rich man who owned that, that tomb because only rich men could afford to have stones carved like that. A poor man would have had a, uh, uh, more of a, a plug that would just plug up the, the hole. And, and, and so that was a, the type of stone that the angel probably sat upon in some of these gospel accounts uh, when, the, when the angel uh, sat on the stone. Um, there are a variety of theories as to what occurred with the resurrection. Uh, one of those was that Jesus was never really dead. Another one was that the Jewish authorities took the body. The Roman authorities took the body. Jesus' disciples took the body. And finally, I think one we have to consider, one we have to put in the lineup is that the possibility, the theory that God miraculously raised Jesus from the dead. Well, let's look at the evidence. Theory number one, Jesus was never dead. Both gospel and secular historical accounts concur that Jesus was killed. In fact, he was killed in front of many witnesses. John was one of them, and he writes about it in his gospel. He says this, writing as an eyewitness. He says, but when they, that means the Roman soldiers, came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. that He's talking about himself. He's writing in the third person. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. It's, a, it's an historical account. We also know that the Romans were exceptionally good at killing people, both quickly and, and slowly in excruciating fashion, as with a crucifixion. And at the end of those crucifixions, they customarily broke legs or pierced with a spear to ensure that the victim was, was dead. So the idea that Jesus was alive when he went into the tomb is just not credible. It doesn't add up. Theory number two, Jewish authorities took the, the body. Let's think motive and opportunity and capability. And when you look at, at any crime or an instance like this, you, you have to 
and trying to figure out uh, who did it, you have to think about uh, who had the motive, who had the desire to do it, who had the opportunity. In other words, who was in the area and could have done it, who had the capability, who had the means to carry it out. In, in this case, uh, with the Jews, they had, uh, assuming they had the motive and the opportunity, they, they could weasel their way past the Romans, would they have had the, uh, the motive? Uh, well, you have to wonder why. Because uh, even if they did, how, they, actually, actually they wanted Jesus in the ground, didn't they? They wanted Jesus dead and in the ground because he'd caused them so much trouble. Um, so even if they did take the body to, somehow to keep it from the disciples, why didn't they produce the body later on when the disciples were preaching about Jesus being alive? And when, claimed, when they claimed they had seen him after the resurrection, why didn't they just produce the body if they had it? And so it doesn't make any sense. Finally, there's a matter of the conspiracy that we read about here in Matthew 28. If this historical account is accurate, then the, the Jewish leaders conspired with those soldiers uh, to tell a false story. They paid them off, in other words. And uh, if they had the body, uh, they wouldn't have had to do that. So the theory that the Jewish authorities took the body doesn't really pass the, the motive test. Theory number three, the Roman authorities took the body. Well, the Romans certainly had the opportunity and the capability to take the body, but where's the motive? They too wanted Jesus dead and in the ground because he was so much trouble. And, and so... Uh, the Roman historians of the, of the era that documented, the secular historians of the, area, of the era that documented Jesus' uh, death and crucifixion and the claims of his resurrection nowhere uh, write about a conspiracy of any kind. And that's extremely unusual that that wouldn't have come out. The, the theory, and the same thing with the Romans, they would have produced the body had they had it if they took it from the tomb. Theory number four, Jesus' disciples took the body. I, again, Think about motive and opportunity and capability. Did, did they have a motive for taking Jesus' body from the tomb? Well, you know, that's hard to see how. They were demoralized and dejected. They were on the run. They were in hiding for fear of the, the Jews at the time. They saw their leader brutally killed and humiliated. Now their own lives were at risk. Even if they had a motive, would they have had the opportunity and the capability to carry out the, the removal of Jesus' body from the tomb. You have to remember these Roman soldiers that were guarding, they were the elite special forces of the day. They, they were the professional killers of the day. And, and the, the disciples were poor fishermen and tax collectors. They were no match for those Roman soldiers. Had they tried to overwhelm them, they would have been slaughtered. Finally, any conspiracy by the disciples to steal the body would have surfaced sooner or later, but it never did. As an investigator, I can tell you that uh, conspiracies are hard to keep. Secrets are hard to keep. They leak out sooner or later. Somebody always talks. Somebody will, have, somebody will go into a bar and have three beers and blab to somebody else, and, and the story will leak out. Or, or, or a, an angry girlfriend uh, will, come, will go to the cops and, and rat out her ex-boyfriend uh, to the cops. It, it, it always happens. Somehow it, it leaks out. Chuck Colson observed this about the failed Watergate conspiracy. He said, Here we were, the 12 most powerful men in the United States. All the power of government was at our fingertips, but we could not keep a lie together for three weeks. <laughs> you, you see, conspiracies come out. And it's unrealistic to think that these simple disciples could have kept a conspiracy to steal Jesus' body and then say he was alive, that they could have kept that a secret for 40-plus years while they were subjected to 
uh, persecution, imprisonment, martyrdom. Many of them had their families killed in front of them because they refused to recant. And, and yet, uh, nobody changed their story. Everybody said, Jesus is alive. Somebody would have cracked in that process rather than uh, recant their faith. They, they would have cracked had that been a, a fabrication. So the theory that the, body, that the disciples could have taken the body and made up a story is, uh, is not plausible. Theory number five, the, the last one, that God raised Jesus from the dead supernaturally. This is the most credible and, and plausible theory based on the evidence. Not, not based on a blind leap of faith in Scripture, but based on the evidence itself. Reason number one, did God have the opportunity to take Jesus' body out of the grave? Well, we know that God was in the area, wasn't he? And he had access to the tomb, right? Did God have the capability to overwhelm the Roman guards and access the tomb? Well, we know from history and scripture that there were occasions when he dispatched a single angel that would wipe out a whole army. So, so we, we, have to, we have to conclude that he had the capability to take that body out of the tomb if, if he wanted to. So he, reason number one, he had opportunity. Reason number two, he had the capability. How about the motive? Did, did God have a motive to raise Jesus from the dead? Oh, yes, incredibly he did. And here it is. And, one of many places in Scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. There you have it. God sent Jesus as part of a rescue plan, part of his grand plan to, to rescue us, the people he loved, and, and all of creation from sin and, and death not just to save us, but to make us his heirs, and he loved us enough that he wants to live with us for eternity. Paul writes about that in Titus. He says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Reason number four. Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection. In my experience as an investigator, when somebody says, when you, when you obtain information that somebody says they're going to make something happen, and then that something happens, there, there's a pretty good uh, inference there that that person was involved in making it happen. Well, Jesus explicitly predicted on more than one occasion that, that he was going to die and rise from the dead. He, says, he said this in Matthew 16. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the, hand of the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So Jesus predicted everything in advance that was going to happen to him. He said explicitly, in fact, that he was going to give up his life and that he was going to take it back again. He said in John 10, For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority. In other words, I have the power to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Reason number four, Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection. Reason number five, direct evidence. Direct evidence is the best kind of evidence. It is eyewitness evidence that says, I saw the person doing this or that. And here we have over 500 witnesses that uh, said that they saw Jesus alive after the resurrection. 
The first eyewitness was Mary Magdalene and uh, Mary, the mother of, of uh, James and, and Salome. They spoke with Jesus at the tomb in John 20. And then Jesus was seen by many people for 40 days afterwards. You see, Jesus didn't just uh, rise from the dead and then ascend into heaven. Uh, no, he, he hung around for 40 days. He met with various groups of people that we read about in the gospel. They got a chance to, f to, to give him food and watch him eat, to stick their hand in the hole on his side. Um, so he was a, he was a real person and, and appeared to many, many people. Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to, to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. This was written in the early history of the church in Corinthians. Paul's saying, most of these people that saw Jesus are still alive as I'm writing this. If you want to talk to them, let me know. Email me, and I'll connect you with them, you know? He's saying that, uh, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Well, uh, the Gospels contain multiple instances where Jesus was seen alive. And then there's some circumstantial evidence as well. In addition to the direct evidence, for the resurrection. Reason number six is circumstantial evidence. There is forensic evidence. There, there is physical evidence that was left behind at the scene. Uh, circumstantial evidence is something that proves something else to be true by inference, not directly, but by inference. Uh, for example, you see somebody running away from a crime scene. That's circumstantial evidence. You don't know that they did that, but it, it certainly would lead one to believe that they did it. You find somebody's fingerprints at a crime scene that's circumstantial evidence that would indicate that they were at least at the scene. And it, and it uh, accumulates to point to the fact that they did it. So here we have, in two accounts in the Gospels, we have grave clothes left at the scene. It says uh, in uh, John 20, for example, Peter and the other disciple were running toward the tomb. Uh, both were running together. The other disciple outran Peter. And when they looked in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, that is, following John, went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up by itself. Now, the physical evidence here is significant. Why is it significant that the, uh, that the grave clothes were there, uh, stacked up neatly, and the, the face cloth was folded up? W what does that tell us about how this occurred? This is the audience participation portion. <laughs> how does that tell us about how that occurred? Oh, okay. Uh, grave robbers would have done what? Taken the whole thing, right? Yeah, and uh, Jason, you said uh, they were unwrapped. That's right. This was, a, this was a grave clothing that was wrapped around him tightly in many layers, like a mummy almost. And, and so uh, the fact that that, uh, that they were, those grave clothes were, were off, that they were laying on the bench in there, that the head cloth was neatly folded, uh, tells us two things. Number one, it was an inside job. <laughs> it, it, it was an inside job. That nobody from outside had done that because grave robbers would have wanted to get out of there as quickly as, as they could. And, and the other thing it tells us is that uh, whoever... whoever uh, took Jesus' body out of the tomb, was not concerned about being discovered by those soldiers. Uh, that was not a threat as far as they were, because they weren't in a hurry, were they? They, they, they un unwrapped the clothing, and we don't know how Jesus did that. We'll find out someday. 
Um, but the point is that it was an inside job. It happened before the stone was rolled away. You see? Nobody from outside did that. The timing of it in the various gospel accounts would indicate that those grave clothes came off before the stone was rolled away. The stone wasn't rolled away so Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so we could see in. You see? And, and so uh, it was an inside job. Somebody unwrapped the body and that could only have been the person who was in the tomb. That is Jesus Christ himself as he demonstrated the, the power of, of God. All four gospel accounts, one last piece of circumstantial evidence, all four gospel accounts indicate that, that women, that is Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, were the first to see both the empty tomb and the resurrected Christ. Let me tell you, if this story was fabricated, why that would not have happened. Because in the Jewish culture of that day, uh, unfortunately, uh, women did not have any credibility as far as testimony was concerned. And so if Jewish writers had fabricated these stories... Uh, to mislead us, they would have put men in those roles, not, not women. The fact, that there are women uh, the fact that there are women in all four of those gospel accounts who were the first to see, the first to meet Jesus, that tells us, we can infer from that that these are true accounts because they wouldn't have been written that, that, that way if they were fabrications. And then finally, the emergence of the worldwide church. We've already talked about that. The explosion of the Christian church uh, those, that ragtag group of disciples could not have undertaken that in their own power. And only after the resurrection and empowerment by the Holy Spirit did that take place. The church grew explosively until it dominated the, the Roman Empire. So the conclusion that we have to come to is that the only reasonable and plausible explanation for the resurrection, for the empty tomb, is that God raised Jesus from the dead on a, human, on a human level. That's not a leap of faith. That's based on the evidence. That's based on an examination of, of the, the scene, if you will. Well, where do we go from here? The book uh, Captive in Iran tells the story of two young Iranian Christian women. And uh, their names are Maryam Rostampur and Marzea Amirazeda. They were born into Muslim families in Iran. They both became Christians as young adults. They met while studying theology in Turkey in 2005. Deciding to work together, they returned to Iran and they began sharing their faith. And by the way, they began distributing New Testaments. And they began uh, holding a church in their home, one of the underground churches in, in Iran. Finally, in 2009, they were arrested in Tehran for promoting Christianity, which is a capital crime in Iran. The official charges against them were apostasy, anti-government activity, and blasphemy, for which they were sentenced to execution by hanging. They spent 259 days in Evan Prison, perhaps the world's most notorious prison, and many around them, maybe some of you, prayed for their release. Following international pressure and after months of interrogation and abuse they were freed in November of 2009 and cleared of all charges but during this time in Evan prison Miriam and Marzea lived out the love of Christ toward their fellow inmates under the filthiest and most extreme conditions imaginable their friends became the murderers and drug addicts 
and prostitutes and thieves and lesbians that God sent them to minister to. And they prayed with them. They loved on them. They comforted them. Miriam writes about one such moment. She says, I noticed that one of their fellow prisoners, I noticed that Mrs. Majub crying quietly on her bed. Not knowing what troubled her, I asked, could we pray for you to find peace in your heart? Yes, please. As Mrs. Majub cried, we prayed. Not loudly, but not hiding what we were doing. Gradually, the women around us stopped their conversations to listen. By the time we finished, neither the, nearly the entire room was silent. Someone called out, Your heart is pure, and God will listen to your voice. Will you pray for me too? Evan Prison, the dreaded hellhole of Tehran, and symbol of radical Islamic oppression, had become our church. And so we prayed on. So we prayed on. You see, the love of Christ lived out in a tangible way is the most powerful testimony that we have. And, and sometimes God positions us in dark places or he asks us to walk through difficult ordeals to prepare us to accomplish his eternal purposes in the lives of others that we might not otherwise meet. Question. What has God asked you and me to walk through to prepare us as instruments to be used for his purposes? Question. How has God positioned you and me to show his love to someone in our lives who does not yet know him? Question. Who has God brought into your life and, and into mine that he wants us to pray for and reach out to in love? And what will it take for us to do that? Friends, the time is short. Let's ask God to empower us and impassion us to accomplish what is on his heart. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the powerful example of Miriam and Marzea in Iran, those two young women in Iran, uh, suffering for you with uh, joy and carrying out the purpose that uh, you put them there for without regard for themselves, Lord. And, it, and I, I thank you for the, the changes in lives that uh, you made through, through them. And Lord, we, we pray for uh, this week for the people that you'll bring into our network of relationships. And we pray that you'll make us attentive to your Holy Spirit uh, to sense uh, when you want us to, to, to speak into someone else's life, when you want us to extend that tangible love of Christ, that tangible expression of the love of Christ into someone else's life. Maybe it's just stepping up and praying with them, Lord. But we ask, ask you to prompt us to do that. And then we ask you to give us what we need to say. And we ask you to work in the hearts of those people that we interact with today that, uh, that you could use us to change the whole trajectory of another's life for eternity. We pray all this in, in the powerful name, Lord, of, of our Savior Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen.